it was just pure chaos by the sounds of it. You know, McKenna was popping Xanax, he had taken cocaine, he making really terrible efforts to try to clean up that scene. He uh, took a, an overdose in custody and, you know, kept saying, you know, he was sorry for what happened. No emotion when the sentence was actually delivered, the four years he got, but I'd say inside he would have been very happy. Four years for trying to clean up such a horrendous crime. He can consider himself a very lucky boy. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the first person to be jailed in relation to the brutal murder of teenager Kean Mulready Woods. Yet despite pleading guilty to cleaning up and removing evidence from the scene of the killing at his home in Rathmullen Park in Drogheda, father of eight, Gerard Jed McKenna, will be a free man in just over a year. So who is McKenna? And what was his role in the shocking murder of the 17-year-old whose dismembered remains were discovered in a sports bag, in the boot of a car and on wasteland in the days and months after he disappeared? Today, I'm talking with Irish independent journalist Robin Schiller, who covered the sentencing of McKenna. He tells me about a chaotic crime scene, a disorganised clean-up and a phone call from a gangland madman. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. First of all, Robin, welcome to Crime World. I've been sort of chasing you for a wee while and you've been avoiding me. <laughs> yeah, you finally you finally got me. It's good to, uh, good to finally be on. So, Jared Jed McKenna, this 52-year-old father of eight who was jailed for what people are feeling is a a very small sentence of four years for um, cleaning up the evidence around the Keane Mulready murder. But we'll come to that because there's reasons for sentencing. And I'm sure you were um, you were listening intently to the to the judge's remarks on that. But um, like, what was his demeanour in court? What was he like, Jared McKenna? Was he, um, you know, I saw... In custody, he was remorseful. Did he look the same way in, in, in court or what? Uh, not particularly, no. He kind of, he strolled in, obviously before the sentencing hearing began, in his tracksuit and was fairly reserved. Um, it's hard to kind of, no emotion when the sentence was actually delivered, the four years he got. But I'd say inside, he would have been very happy, you know, with four years for trying to clean up mm. such a horrendous crime. He can consider himself a very lucky boy. And with the... 22 months he's already served. Uh, if my maths is right, he'll be out by next May. So, you know, all things considered, it isn't the worst sentence for him. But compared to what he was like in custody, you know, with the kind of shame and remorse that he expressed with Gardy, and he even took an overdose at one stage and was hospitalised for nearly three days. So it's certainly, you know, the body language in court two years on was a lot different to what he would have been like in the Garda station in February 2020. Mm. So he's 52, as we say, and a father of eight. He was living in a two-bedroom house in Rathmullen Park in Drogheda. And, I mean, to visit this story, we have to go back to those horrendous events, really, of January 2020. Um, And start, really, with January 13th, I think, when the mother of Kean Mulready Woods, a 17-year-old, makes a phone call to the guards. Yeah, so for this, I suppose, you have to start forwards and work backwards. So his mother, Elizabeth, would have made contact with Gardy at around 4 o'clock on the afternoon of January 13th and would have went into Drogheda Garda Station to report Keane missing. 
And at the time, he was charged with certain offences and was under curfew as part of bail conditions. And, you know, Gardy would have said it was very unusual for him not to, not to be home for those curfews. He'd bite a bite all the time, so it was very out of character for him not to return home. And there were serious concerns about him. So when he was reported missing, you know, Gardy took it very seriously. And they started carrying out inquiries and they discovered that at six o'clock the previous evening, an eyewitness saw him on Dominic's Bridge in Drogheda getting into a taxi. And you know, more inquiries were carried out and they reviewed CCTV footage of Balls Grove, which is it's a housing estate, um, basically joined on to Ratmullen Park where Jared McKenna lived. And when they looked at that footage, they saw um, Kimori Woods get out of the taxi, a man who was referred to as Mr. A paying for that taxi and then going into a shop with him. And then a short time later, they both came out and got into a Volkswagen Jetta driven by a man who was called Mr. A, uh, Mr. B and then drove off um, you know, a short distance away from McKenna's house. And the reason those two men weren't named in court is because they're both suspects in the murder investigation. I know you can only surmise that. That's the last time we've seen alive. It was only a short distance away from Jeremy McKenna's house. And, you know, presumably he was brought to that house, lured to that house immediately after his last seen on CCTV footage. So now um, you said he was 17. He was facing he was facing some some charges himself before the courts. Were they sort of public order offences or were they related to the wider Drogheda feud that had been going on? I mean, at this time, Drogheda was a place that we all as crime journalists were, 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 were writing about. You know, tensions were very, very high there at that stage. And the disappearance of this young boy with links to, you know, certainly both sides of the, of the feud was really, really serious. Yeah, it was a powder keg at the time. Um, and, you know, Keane himself would have been from the Marley's Lane area at some stage in his kind of, you know, mid-teens would have been sucked in his lifestyle, which we fortunately happen so often. And he would have progressed in terms of criminality and, you know, he would have had one conviction for possession of cannabis. And there was also other suspicions about him being on periphery of more serious crime. So he certainly, um, he certainly was getting named for himself. He wasn't just, you know, a new kid in the block. But he was still only 17, you have to remember that as well, you know, and at that age it's easy to fall into the trappings of wealth that's associated with organised crime. And unfortunately for him, you know, he was playing both sides of the feud as well, in a way. He was you know, being blamed for certain things by this kind of anti-Maguire faction, as you call them. And it seems, you know, that that was um, eventually the motive for that killing. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, he was one of these teenagers that had been drawn in. He was being obviously, you know, he was making some money out of it. Is that what we say? And, you know, threats are used. We know all that. Um, but nonetheless, he had sort of made a lifestyle choice, um, albeit he was he was a young guy and we make bad choices when we're teenagers. But he had made a lifestyle choice to be part of this sort of gang culture. And um, so he was and I'm saying that with no disrespect to him or his family, but I mean, in the point from the point of view that this missing report by his mother um you know, at 4 p.m. in the Garda station was, you know, it was it was taken really super seriously. This wasn't just a teenager that might have had a row, you know, with with the family member or with a girlfriend or something like that. This was a guy that was known to be sort of embedded within those feuding gangs. Absolutely. And look, we're just giving context here. We're not trying to Obviously, you know, justify what happened in any way. It was an absolutely horrendous crime, but at the end of the day, he was involved with serious criminality. And, you know, one of the charges he was facing was for an arson attack and a drug-related sort of crime. 
Um, so he was, as he said, in bed with his gangs. And when Gardy received that report, as he said, it wasn't just, uh, you know, another teenager going missing and might have, you know, come home in a few hours, who knows, but let's just check. It was, there were serious concerns raised for his welfare immediately. And that's why, you know, Gardy took it so seriously, began their inquiries. And fairly soon, unfortunately, it you know, became clear that something very, very bad had happened to Keane Murray Woods. So reporting on that story at the time, Robin, things happened really, really quickly from that initial um, missing report that was made by his mother um, in Drogheda Garda station, uh, which did certainly cause concern locally. That evening, there was a second call made to guards in another part of, uh, of the country in Dublin. And there had been a gruesome discovery in a housing estate in the Coolock area. Yeah, so at around quarter to ten, I think that evening in the Moldfair area of Priorswood in uh, Dublin, you know, people were out walking and they came across the sports bike and it looked kind of suspicious, you know, just kind of thrown out onto the road. And when they had a look, you know, you, can, you can't even begin to imagine the kind of horror of it when you see these human limbs or human remains. And I remember at the time, you know, like yourself, we would have all been hearing about this gruesome discovery and thinking, surely not, you know, it's not something that normally happens here. But Gardy were taking it seriously. And within an hour or so, the name Kimori Woods was being said, and he was unbeknownst to me at the time, I have to say. But, you know, they knew fairly quickly that they were linked in some kind of way. There would have been Kulak connections, obviously, to that Drahada feud. They're kind of intrinsically linked in different ways. So it became fairly evident fairly quickly what they were dealing with. And by four o'clock the next afternoon, Gardy, you know, acting on information and intelligence, carried out a search at Jed McKenna's house. And, you know, even the papers the next day by January 15th, uh, Robbie Lawler and other people were already being identified as suspects. So within kind of 24 hours or maybe less even, Gardy knew exactly what they were dealing with, who they were dealing with, and, you know, where, exactly where to look, essentially. And it was a very fast-moving investigation. And I suppose at the same time, um, while the Gardaí were piecing together what had gone on in the run-up to this horrific murder and, uh, uh, you know, his disappearance and his horrific murder, we were able to do the same because there had been this sort of a lot of gangland drama, for want of a better word, that had occurred around the Drogheda uh, feud uh, in the in the weeks and months really before this. There had been the murder in, in the November of 2019 of Richard Carberry, a very serious, significant criminal living in the Bettystown area. He was shot dead outside his home. Now, he would have been a relative and connected very strongly with Robbie Lawler. At that point, he was in prison serving a sentence. He was due to be released a very volatile criminal who had gone to war with the Maguire faction of the, the, the Drogheda gangs and was due to be released from prison. And, you know, that had sort of set out a red alert across Garda stations in the area and outside it. There was a lot of fear about what was going to happen when Robbie Lawler was released, um, what he was going to do. And in the weeks before the uh, Keen Mulready went missing, of course, there was the famous video. Yes, that's only the start of it. That's only the start of it. That's only the start of it, Robbie. Yeah, that, you know, it's like red, a red rag to a bull. Like, there was obviously serious concerns about Lawler getting out anyway, and, you know, Richard Carby would have been his brother-in-law, and Carby himself would have been, I suppose, the Dublin link to that Drotter crew. Like, with these gangs, you normally have people on the, the call face of it, on the ground, who are the kind of lieutenants or main men, but there's always people pulling the strings, and Richie Carby certainly would have been one of those individuals pulling the strings and funding that Drotter gang. So Robbie Lawler was obviously very close to him, 
and there were concerns about him getting out anyway. And then just, you know, these young lads from Kulak who, um, I suppose, mugged him, attacked him. Um, it just it certainly would have escalated matters, you know. And there would have been taunts then in the days after, you know, young lads posing with flip-flops, which they'd robbed from his bag. Yeah, because, Robin, in the normal world, like, I mean, you know, you call it the mugging of Robbie Lawler. He was pushed around a bit when he came out of a gym and he was sort of slagged off Um his gym bag was taken and there was the flip-flops in it and then there was a little bit of social media backlash from the the young lads who did that. But it was really, really hard to connect that incident to what happened to Keen Mulready Woods. Yeah, they're kind of different level, really. You know, it's kind of the insult, though. Like, you know, safety numbers as well. Would one of them, if they're on their own, have done that to Robbie Lawler, kind of a criminal of his calibre? Probably not. But the kind of the really kind of horrendous things of it was when that bag was found with Kim Reed Woods' limbs inside, there was also a pair of flip-flops in it. And, you know, it's a very kind of symbolic thing away from Robbie Lawler was obviously suspect in his murder to, you know, giving two fingers his young lad saying, you're messing with me, here you are. And it's just <laughs> to react in the way he did and for that murder to be carried out after being, you know, obviously stuff happened beforehand and murders and all that, but that kind of, this incident in the city centre which was recorded for that then to develop in him placing flip-flops into the the bag containing the limbs of a 17-year-old boy, essentially, was just, it's hard to kind of get your head around it, really, and the the probably involved in that and the kind of mindset of a person they would do it. I like, know it's really, it's something I don't think I've come across. You've been in this longer than me now, obviously, Nicola, but No, I don't think I imagine. have, but I, I have come across these sort of stupid incidents before that start feuds. I mean, there was one kind of uh, feud down either in the West or in the Midlands or something. And I mean, it was horrendous. And there was, you know, hatchet attacks. There was absolutely everything going on. Went on for a couple of years and every so often violence would break out. But I remember somebody telling me it had started because uh, there had been a funeral and somebody stood on, you know, on the edge of a grave kind of thing. But it was the wrong person's grave. And that's what started it. And, you know, this individual who did that sort of said, well, you know, sorry, I didn't realise. Maybe they did, but they, you know, that's that's what started it. And for me, I think the whole Keen Mulready Woods horrendous story and saga is a lesson really to all young people that are kind of getting involved in those gangs and, you know, are finding that whole lifestyle attractive and they want that, you know, the obvious things. They want the the, the gear and the the runners and... I suppose that sense of power you feel within your community if you're a member of something, a part of a gang. But I mean, such a simple somebody being roughed up in the street can ramp up within a couple of weeks to, you know, a 17 year old being abducted off the street and and murdered in the way he was and dismembered is just that's what Gangland Ireland has become. Um, Now, thankfully, we don't see this kind of thing too often. And that's why we're talking about it, really. But nonetheless, It just shows how chaotic that world is. But getting back to McKenna, really, because he is an interesting character in all this, even though, you know, a lesser light. Um, As the 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 limbs are discovered in that bag um, in Kulak, clearly the the Gardaí have got a handle on exactly what has happened. And they were very quickly. I mean, it was the day after those limbs were discovered that they got their warrant and they went into Jed McKenna's house in Rathmullen Park. Uh, what did they find there? 
Uh, it's nearly a case of what they didn't find, you know. Um, I think the Judge Paul McDermott in court said that, you know, crude efforts were made to clean up the house and that's put in mild, you know. It's just, there's so much forensic evidence left over for Gardaí. So when they first went in around four o'clock, they could get the smell of paint and, you know, they looked at the walls, looked at the ceiling and there's still blood splatter. Killing Murray Wood's blood just clearly visible even through the paint on the walls. Um, there was a TV unit with a skybox which had blood in it still, which just simply left in the lounge area. Um, there was a fireplace that had blood in it, a radiator underneath the, the window sill inside. And like, this is after, I think, two efforts have been made to clean the place and it's still it's clearly evident that it was a crime scene. And you know, the blood in the ceiling and the walls kind of gives a, a picture of what exactly went on in that house at the time. And then you have the floorboards as well. Gardy looked at, you know, a corner of this lounge area. It was clear that part of the wooden floor had been taken up and replaced with different flooring, but it was a different kind of flooring. It wasn't fitted properly. It was simply kind of thrown down nearly on top of the other bits of wood and, you know, kind of half uh, half hearted attempt to clean up the scene. And there was more blood recovered from that. And then they carried out a search of the back garden where this couch or part of this couch that was inside the house at the time of the killing was. And more blood was found on that. They went into a kind of green area at the back of McKenna's house, which is around 70 metres away. So not too far away at all. You know, if you're going to try hide evidence, you'd do it somewhere better. But there was a fire there that had been lit on Tuesday morning. And they found um, they found bags of burnt evidence. Uh, what they, found? they found Kimori Woods' ballistic vest with his blood in it. They found uh, Swiss Army knives with blood in them as well and gloves. And then, they found, sorry, they found a bit of the couch as well, the settee that had been set on fire. And then further searches in McKenna's house led to a key of a Toyota Corolla being found, and that car was at the back of the property. And when they searched that, they found an axe with blood in the handle, uh, more clothes, and a bone fragment as well, which all tied into the murder. So it, there were attempts made to clean the property, but the, you know, kind of half-hazard attempts and, you know, burning evidence right down the road. And not to say getting away from the Gardaí who investigated, you know, they did a great job and this is the first conviction, there's been other charges and there might even be more charges. But the people involved and especially Jed McKenna, you know, made life easy for them in certain ways by just making such a crude and terrible, terrible attempt to clean up this crime scene. So it sounds like a very disorganised scene, a very chaotic scene uh, doesn't look like... A massive amount of planning certainly went into the, well, certainly went into the cleanup. Where was McKenna when this occurred? And was there any evidence given in his trial? Now, we should say, of course, he pleaded guilty. So very little evidence was heard except sentence evidence, which is pretty much the bones of what happened or what he was involved in. So the likes of We've touched on in this in this case blood spatter evidence, which is an extremely important science in forensics. And if somebody had pleaded not guilty, perhaps the uh, you know the details of that evidence would have been you know uh, given by forensic experts who would have been able to possibly tell what that splatter evidence tells us because it can you know it can tell where somebody is hit, it can tell at what sort of um, you know what strength what sort of weapons are used, where they are lying, when they are, you know, receiving injuries, etc. So none of that was heard in the case of Jed McKenna because he was simply had pleaded guilty. This is just part of what was discovered in his home. But was there evidence as regards, was he there at the time? Was he was he out? Did he come back and, and clean up? Did he did he have any eyes on, on the body of, of Keen Mulready Woods? 
No, so the one thing they did say in the sentence in here and the judge had some remarks was that he wasn't there at all at the time this happened. There was, in the brief evidence that we heard, you know, we were told that McKenna met a few men on that, the Sunday afternoon in a cafe in, uh, in Drogheda and was obviously told not to go near the house. And you know, Gary would say that he may not have known exactly what was going to happen, but he knew something bad and terrible was going to happen. So he didn't go near the house until the Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. And, you know, Gardy, when they arrested him and questioned him, they said, you know, was it like an abattoir? And he said, no, it was clean. You know, the house was, it's normally in disarray. And it was actually clean for a change. And he got a phone call off, you know, a person deceased of various significant notoriety. And you don't have to be a seasoned detective to realise they're talking about Robbie Lawler. And was told... So they didn't name Robbie Lawler in court, but you could, you, you know, you could read between the lines that that's exactly who had phoned him. Yeah, and it wouldn't be hard to kind of figure it out. You know, it and just you know, clear sources as well, yeah. certain murders. Yeah, it was clear it was uh, Robbie Lawler. And that phone call kind of set off the chain of events as well. But getting back to McKenna, so he you know, popped a few Xanax. He started cleaning up and he went down to the shop to get paint and he was calling CCTV in the local hardware store. And the kind of saying, you know, you wouldn't send to the shops comes to mind because on his way back, he seems to have dropped the paint or spilled the paint or the paint was no good anymore. So he had to pop into the neighbour to get more paint and to get these pallets of wood. I started kind of, you know, the neighbour gave a statement to Gardie saying he was rabbling, he was incoherent, he was kind of intermittently breaking down and seemed to be having a very hard time with the whole thing. And he went back then and cleaned up more. But another thing that's kind of a small point that wasn't really touched on too much in the hearing, but was briefly mentioned, was that his daughter actually was near the house at the time. He obviously hadn't told her, or he had told her, and she hadn't got the picture that he wouldn't be there and he'd be elsewhere. So she seems to have been unaware of what was going on, being near the property at the time. And I know McKenna, in his interviews and with neighbours, kind of expressed concerns that she could have, you know, been hurt in some kind of way by the people who uh, who killed Kim Murray Woods when she went back to that house. So that was the evidence they heard, and it was just pure chaos by the sounds of it. You know, McKenna was popping Xanax, he had taken cocaine, he making really terrible efforts to try to clean up that scene, and, you know, that was that was evident in what Gardy found and, you know, all the evidence that yeah. they recovered. Now, it was a month before he was arrested, and there's a reason for that, isn't there? Because when the guards go in and they take evidence and they collect, you know, blood samples and DNA samples, they have to wait until they come back from the labs because when they arrest somebody, they can only get one go at it and they have to put the evidence to the individual if they need to use that evidence in court. So uh, McKenna was free for a a full month before he was arrested in connection with this case, uh, even despite this scene that had been discovered in his two-bedroom house. But when he was arrested, he goes into custody and he's... He is remorseful. That 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 appears to have been certainly the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, even I think a few days into his interrogation or his interviews, he uh, took a, an overdose in custody on purpose and tried to take his own life, essentially, and was hospitalised. And, you know, kept saying, you know, he was sorry for what happened. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Um, you know, he expressed fears for his own safety and for his family's safety. I think he told them at one stage, you know, he will kill my child and they will mince my child. And I don't know why it took to call, though he was obviously remorseful about what happened, but also regretting himself uh, getting into this mess in the first place and, you know, expressed concerns for his family's sake as well. In a way, he sort of comes across or is painted as a a classic, you know, problem drug user who makes very bad decisions, you know, on a day to day basis, probably. But, you know, he knows these people, so he has obviously been um, in the outer circles of these gangs um, during his 
his time um 52 years of age is he any previous convictions or is there any sort of indication on what what criminality he was involved in before this yeah you'd, you'd have a fairly healthy rap sheet now you'd have 14 previous convictions prior to this one this would be his 15th obviously and the first one would have been 93 for burglary when he was in his early 20s and you know I kind of picked them up sporadically since then there's another burglary conviction there was a sale of drugs um, sort of possession of drugs for same supply conviction and in 2017, there would have been a violent disorder conviction as well. And his defence, uh, Michael Higgins, senior counsel, one of the most respected defence barristers in the country, would have said, you know, that he wasn't part of this organised crime gang and that was in a way accepted by the court. But I think local people and maybe local guardy to a certain extent would be at odds with that statement. You know, they certainly suggest that McKenna, if not a lower level, might even be a mid-level member of this anti-Maguire faction that would be trusted by them and that he would have been very close to the two brothers to lead that faction. And, you know, if at the start of this feud or even before that murder, if Gardy were compiling a list of people who were linked to that gang, you know, to paraphrase the sporting quote, he wouldn't be the first name in the team sheet, but he certainly wouldn't be the last either. And I think that was evident, the fact that he was trusted enough to, you know, be asked to give them the house, to let them use it and then to clean up after the fact. It does show that he was closely connected and trusted by this organised crime gang. Yeah, because he was certainly more than somebody who has uh, their house. We hear this term cuckooing being used a lot of late. And, you know, that's when these drug dealers or drug gangs will take over the home of an addicted drug user who's maybe very vulnerable and they will either use it as a place to sell drugs or to stash them or whatever it is. But um, he does seem to have a little bit more of a connection to the gang than than somebody like that, even though that's, in a way, the way he kind of came across in court. And this, by the way, is the first, really, of the Cian Mulready Woods, the, the beginnings, I suppose, maybe, of of, of the, the full Cian Mulready Woods story. There are two people before the courts, Paul Crosby and Jared Cruz. So there are two people before the courts um, in charged with the murder of Cian Mulready Woods and their trials are due to happen, I think you told me, in April. So, um, you know, if they are going to plead guilty, more evidence, further evidence and probably much more detailed and gruesome evidence will come out. But nonetheless, um, I think we've kind of had a bit of an, an insight, a little bit of a, a window into into what happened to uh, to the teenager. Um, anybody who has spoken about this since the sentencing has been absolutely shocked and somewhat appalled that he only got four years. Yeah, it seems to be kind of the general consensus. You know, I think the maximum sentence for that particular offence impeding the apprehension of those involved was 10 years. And Paul McDermott, the judge in the Central Criminal Court, said that he set an initial headline sentence of seven years and then obviously as a standard of these criminal cases, you have to take into account the guilty plea, which is probably the most valuable to Jared McKenna because he pleaded guilty so early and saved the state of trial. And his general remorse at the time anyway came into play as well. And you know, that brought him down to five years and three months. And then the judge also wanted to leave it light at the end of the tunnel, as they normally say, and spend the last 15 months. So, you know, we have a four-year sentence. And Jed McKenna... He would have been arrested initially in February 2020. He would have got bail and then that was revoked. And he managed to get high court bail again, but couldn't take it up for whatever reason. So he's been in custody pretty much since May 2020. So that 22 months also he gets credit for. So, you know, from his sentencing this week, um, that being backdated, he'll be out by next May probably. So 
you know, while well, the maximum sentence is 10 years, you know, essentially will serve four and be out and, you know, just over one. And for the crime that was carried out and, you know, he's not obviously charged with the murder, there's no kind of suggestion that he was involved in that anyway, but there are a lot of people kind of wondering how come a man, the first person convicted in the relation to that crime, was given such a, what they would say, I suppose, is a short sentence. Mm. What's the headline sentence? Just can you explain that? Because I think we tend to throw that out thinking everybody understands it. Yeah, so the headline sentence is essentially um, the kind of, I suppose, the main sentence before any other factors are taken into account, any kind of mitigation on behalf of the accused. You know, there might be character references handed in, there might be guilty pleas, there might be other mitigating circumstances, their personal backgrounds might be taken into account. And that obviously brings it down then to whatever extent. Normally for guilty pleas, you might get a 25% credit in some courts. And then um, basically there may also be a suspended aspect thrown into as well, which is obviously what happened here which is why we have the, the four-year sentence for Jared McKenna. So very few people really will start their headline on the maximum that, you know, that, that 10-year maximum you spoke about. There'd be very few people who would start the headline there and then have anything knocked off it. So um, it's a mathematical kind of a, a, a thing for the judges, isn't it, to, to, to come up with the, the sentences. And usually, and of course, they have to be robust, the sentences, because... There can be appeals from both sides, both the DPP, which is the state, can appeal a sentence if it's seen as being too lenient. And, um, you know, an accused can also appeal a sentence. Clearly, if they feel it's it's too heavy a sentence, they will appeal it. Sometimes there will be a few years knocked off. So the judges have to be able to, their, their, their sentences have to be robust to get through the appeals court, really. Yeah, definitely. There's, as you said, you know, a defendant can appeal if he thinks he's been too harshly treated by the courts and the DPP can also, you know, appeal on grounds of undue leniency. But one thing to keep in mind is when a defendant appeals, it can go up as well. And you do see a lot of cases where a judge might say to him at the start in the court of appeal, you know, just to let you know, this can go down, but there's also a chance it might go up. And on that basis, you see a lot of appeals withdrawn where they don't want to really take their chances and they're happy enough with their sentence and you know, they just, you know, withdraw the appeal and get on with their sentence, essentially. Mm. And finally, Robin, was there any members of Keen Mulready's family there to see this sentence or did was there anybody there for Jed McKenna? Was there was there members of the public interested in this or was it simply a, you know, just a piece of business by the courts? Well, since the restrictions have been lifted, members of the public are allowed back in, so there will be more interest in that sense. Um, given the charge and you know what he pleaded guilty to, there was no victim impact statement, so there was no need in this instance for Kim Murray Woods' family to be there. But if there are um, further convictions down the line, there may or may not be, but if there is, that's when it'll come more into play for uh, their family and they may have the day in court, depending on what happens down the line. Okay, well thanks a million, Robin. Thanks for coming on. No worries. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.